0: I should like to call your attention once more to the prayer which the Apostle Paul offered for the church at Ephesus. It's recorded in the third chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians, and I want to read again from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now, in our consideration of this great prayer, we have come to verses 18 and 19. May be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that he might be filled with all the fullness of God, We come here to the matter which the Apostle rarely has had in his mind from the very beginning. We have seen that he has offered a number of petitions for these Ephesian people. And uh, it is with this matter which we are now going to consider in his mind that he has offered the various other petitions. They were preparatory, they were essential as preparation, but uh, they are not ends in themselves. They are designed to lead us on and to bring us to this. He has prayed, for instance, that uh, God, according to the riches of his glory, would strengthen them by might with his Spirit in the inner man. He prays that that may happen, that Christ may dwell in their hearts. Because if that happens, they will be rooted and grounded in love. But why is all this necessary? It is necessary in order that they may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. This is the thing, I say. This is the grand objective. We are therefore this morning, if I may so put it, uh, standing upon the heights of God. In our minds, in our thoughts, and in our meditation and contemplation, there is nothing higher than this. This is the highest thing of all, so God grant us his spirit that we may realize uh, where we are, we are in a very rarefied atmosphere, we are in a place where, alas, we are uh, not very accustomed to, for we are most of us content to spend our time in the lowlands and in the dull plains uh, with the mists and all that characterizes life at that level. And therefore, if I may borrow a phrase from the Apostle Peter, it behoves us to gird up the loins of our minds and be sober, that we may be enabled to spend our time together in such an atmosphere and in such a situation. Now, I approach this great matter very literally with fear and trembling, Those of you who have uh, ever read about this great passage will discover how all who have ever essayed to deal with it and have attempted to expound it have obviously been conscious of the same inadequacy as I am aware of myself. And that is why they give one such little help. There are certain passages of scripture where there is an abundance of help. The commentators and expositors uh, expand themselves and spread themselves. They've got so much to say. But it is interesting to notice that when you come to a passage like this, how little they have to say. It's not surprising, I say. It is because of the very nature and character of the truth with which we are dealing. And therefore, as we approach it together, we must all Realize that this is a subject which you cannot divide and analyze into your neat little categories and compartments and have it all cut and dried. A man once said and said very truly, you can't analyze and dissect a fragrance. Still less can you analyze and dissect love. All you can do is to look at it and to say certain things about it. Above all, you have to experience it, and there are experiences which are almost inexpressible because of their very character and nature, because of their exalted character, and such is this statement which we are looking at together this morning. Well, now, all I want to do this morning in particular is to uh, take a general look at this, Let's try to familiarize ourselves with it in general. Before we begin to particularize, let's uh, look round, I say, and take our breath again and be sure that we are breathing easily and freely in this rarefied atmosphere. I therefore would put uh, this matter to you in the form of... a uh, Some uh, obvious and uh, general uh, propositions, but propositions which we tend, it seems to me, to neglect uh, so constantly in our thinking. Here is the first. This is the highest attainment in the Christian life, to know the love of Christ. Now, there is a good deal of argument amongst the learned authorities, and it's on this they spend most of their time in connection with this passage, as to what the breadth and the length and the depth and the height refer to. You notice how he puts it, that he may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. So some argue that the breadth and length and depth and height do not refer to the love of Christ, that the end is indicative of the fact that here he's thinking of something else in these dimensions, and also then goes on to talk about the love of Christ. But it seems to me that that is a very artificial distinction. If you want to say that the breadth and length and depth and height refer to the whole of God's dealings with us, all right, I'm prepared to agree. But surely that's just another way of saying that you're considering the love of God and the love of Christ with respect to us. It's the theme that the apostle has been dealing with in passing in the whole of the chapter. He's already spoken about the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's the same thing. Here I say then, we come to that which is the acme, the very highest point of all, in the Christian life and in Christian attainment. Let us observe that what he's dealing with is not our love, but his love to us. We've already been dealing with our love when we were looking at the phrase being rooted and grounded in love. That we saw was our love to God and to our fellow men and to the Christian life and to the law of God and so on. Now it's no longer that. That was necessary in order to bring us to this, and this is the realization of and the knowledge of his love to us. Now, another point is obviously necessary just here. There may be some who are saying to themselves at this moment, but surely you can't be a Christian at all without knowing the love of God and the love of Christ towards you, which is perfectly true. You cannot truly be a Christian without knowing it. If you believe that Christ has died for your sins, well, you must of necessity believe in the love of God and the love of Christ to you. He would never have given himself but for that. So there are many people who think that you start with this love, but clearly that is not an explanation of what we are dealing with here. The apostle is writing to people and praying for people who are already Christians. They have already, as he's reminded them in the first chapter, realized that, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Very well, they've got all that. They have believed the gospel, they've realized, therefore, something of God's love to them. And yet the apostle's prayer for them here is that they may go on to comprehend with all saints and to know this love. Well, what is it then? Well, if you like, you can say that it is a matter of degree. There is that preliminary awareness of the love of God, but that's a very different thing from the thing with which the apostle is dealing here. Indeed, this love that he is dealing with here is so much greater than that. That every man who's ever had an experience of this is tempted to say at the beginning, I've never known the love of God until this moment. I knew of it and I knew about it, but now I know it. It's that sort of difference. So that we must never fall into that error of imagining that because we are Christians, we therefore know all about the love of God. My dear friends, we are but like children paddling at the edge of an, uh, of an ocean. And there are depths and abysses in this love of God that we know nothing about. That's the thing that he's praying for. That we may go out into the deeps and the depths of it all and discover things that we've never even imagined. Now, another preliminary remark which is very essential is this. That we are talking about love not as a concept, but that we are talking about the love of Christ. It's personal, therefore. It's this personal knowledge of him and of his love to us. you notice how John put it in the 16th verse of that fourth chapter of his first epistle, which we read at the beginning? And we know and have believed the love that God hath to us. That's it. That's the same kind of thing that this Apostle Paul is speaking of here. And therefore, I'm anxious to put it in this form. The end of every knowledge that we have should be this knowledge of the love of Christ to us. The end and the purpose and objective of every doctrine is to bring us to this. You see, it's possible for us to know all doctrine, in a sense, and yet not know this. You can stop with doctrine, and if you stop with doctrine alone, you are wrong. You are missing this. Doctrine is not an end in itself. Doctrine, of course, is absolutely vital and essential. The apostle has been making that perfectly plain here as he leads up to this great thought. This can be laid down beyond any dispute or question. No man has ever known this love of Christ that the apostle is defining here unless he has been deeply taught and well-versed in doctrine. It simply cannot be done. The people say, "Ah, I can't be bothered about doctrine. All right, if you can't be bothered about doctrine, you'll never know this love. Never. It's impossible. But I say, on the other hand, it is equally urgent and important to say this. That if you stop with your doctrine, you still don't know this. What frail creatures we are. Half of us are not interested in doctrine. We are lazy Christians. We don't read. We don't think. We don't delve into the mysteries. We say, oh, I've got my experience. I want no more. That's half of us. Then the others of us seeing that that is wrong, we say, of course, the Bible is full of this doctrine and we must get at it and grapple with it and possess it. And we become so interested in it that we stop at it. And as regards this question of the love of Christ, we are no further on than the others because we've made an end and a terminus of doctrine. Thus, you see, the devil trips us and traps us in every conceivable situation. So there is nothing more important than for us to realize this together. I may understand all mysteries, but if I ha- have not love, if I have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. If the knowledge that you have of the scriptures and of the doctrine of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if all this hasn't bring you, brought you to a knowledge, and if it doesn't bring you to this knowledge of the love of Christ, Well, you should be profoundly miserable. You should be disturbed. For I say the doctrine is about the person. And there is no greater snare in the Christian life than to forget the person himself and to live simply on truths concerning the person. That is why, you know, some of us have always had a feeling that it's a very dangerous thing to have examinations on scriptural knowledge. You know, some of the reformers taught that, Martin Luther taught that, some of the Puritans taught that. I don't think there should ever be such a thing as a degree in scriptural knowledge and in theology. Why? Well, not because the thing is wrong in and of, of itself, but it, because it tends to encourage this very tendency to stop at truths And to miss the person. You should never study the Bible or anything concerning the biblical truth without realizing that you're in his presence. It's truth about him. And it should all be done in an atmosphere of worship. It's not a subject. It's not something that belongs to a syllabus. It's living truth about a living person. And that is why a theological college should be different from every other kind of college. And that is why a service such as this is different from every kind of meeting that the world can ever organize. It is always a matter of worship. We are in the presence of the person. Well, let me put that in a form in which this apostle puts it in writing to the Philippians. Though he had traveled so far in the Christian life and though he'd had such blessed experiences, this is what he says. This is his ambition, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Therefore, he says, forgetting the things that are behind, I press forward. You can't satisfy love. And once you know this person and begin to love him, oh, all you've had is not enough. You want more and more and more. That's what he's praying for these Ephesians. That I might know him, because to know him is to know his love. The more we know him, the more we'll know his love toward us. These things are indivisible. You can't separate them. They go together invariably. Well, now then, I therefore lay it down as this first proposition, that this is the goal of all our Christian endeavor, to know this love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. I wonder how much of it we know this morning. I wonder how real it is to us. I've quoted hymns to you on previous occasions. Think of them again. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds, In a believer's ear. Is it true? Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness, fills my breast. Is that true of you? I know you've believed. I know you may be very learned in in the Bible and in doctrine. Ah, that's not what I'm asking. Do you really know him? Do you know his love? This is the highest point. This is the object of all our endeavor. Well, the second proposition I would lay down would be this one. That this is something that is possible for all Christians. That he may be able to comprehend with all saints. Now, this is a very important statement. Indeed, the two words are important. Take, first of all, the word saints. may be able to comprehend with all saints. Saints means, of course, those separated ones, the holy ones. It's another term which is used in the scripture for Christians. And therefore what it means is this, that this knowledge is only possible to those who do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why the apostle has already been emphasizing faith, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. I'm talking about something this morning, we are considering something together, that the man who's not a Christian has no conception of at all. He just doesn't know what we're talking about. He doesn't know what we're talking about, you see, because... As we are reminded in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, where the Lord, you remember, promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who believe on him, he makes it perfectly plain and clear that the promise is only to the Christians. He's talking about the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I'm therefore constrained to say a thing like this in passing at this moment. Is all this here in this uh, third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, is, is this all strange to you? And do you rather feel at this moment, well, I came here uh, into this church out of a difficult world where there are so many problems and threats of war and so on, and I did hope I'd get some practical work. But all this, it seems, up in the cloud. Is that your reaction? My dear friend, be very careful. If it is, you're proclaiming exactly where you belong. The world can't receive the Holy Spirit because it doesn't, doesn't know him. And because it can't receive the Holy Spirit... It knows nothing about this love. It's only those who are strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner men who can go up here and begin to understand these things. It's only for saints. God forbid that anyone should have a feeling here this morning that he doesn't belong to the saints. That he's a stranger in the midst. That though he may have the form of godliness and of Christianity, that he rarely doesn't enter into it all. There is something secret about this. It's a secret that is only enjoyed by the Lord's people. You know the Bible's full of this. Listen to it in the book of Revelation, for instance. Listen to this word to the church at Pergamos in the second chapter of the book of Revelations, verse 17. It's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. The hidden manna. The white stone with a name written on it that nobody can understand. They can see the lettering, but it means nothing to them. Ah, none understand it, uh, save those who truly receive it. This is the secret of the Christian. This is a secret love that nobody else knows anything at all about. There is a great affection between two persons, and they've kept it a great secret They're enjoying it, their hearts are ravished, and nobody else knows anything at all. And they're enjoying the very secrecy of it, in a sense. That's the character of this love about which we are speaking. The world knows nothing about it. It's only saints. It's only those who have been separated from the world and brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son. But they are given to enjoy the secrets and to feast on the hidden manner. I have food to eat, says our Lord, to his own disciples on one occasion. That he know not of and that the world doesn't know of. The hidden manner, The secret name. Very well, it is only for saints. But I do want to add and hasten to add that it is for all the saints. I've been saying this before in dealing with this section. I must say it again because... I'm well aware of the subtle danger of our holding on to certain relics of that completely false Roman Catholic teaching, which says that only certain Christians are saints. You see, in the Roman Church, all Christians are not saints, only the people who are canonized, and they are very exceptional and unusual people. They're called saints so-and-so. But here we are told that we are all saints. The apostle writes to the saints that are at Corinth and at Rome, all Christians are saints, separated people. Yes, and this knowledge, therefore, is for all saints. If you uh, accept that uh, Catholic idea of piety and of the devotional life and of the Christian experience, Well, then you will say, well, of course, this kind of thing that you are talking about there in that third chapter of Ephesians is very wonderful, but um, it's only possible for those who go out of the world and give up their professions and become religious, by which they mean that you forsake any secular avocation and you enter into a monastery, you become a monk or a nun or a hermit and you take up religion as the whole being of your life and then they say no doubt after years of that after years of fasting and sweating and praying and isolation and segregation of yourself you arrive at the knowledge this slow prolonged process it's a complete denial of what the apostle is saying all saints Probably most of these people at Ephesus to whom Paul was writing were slaves. But he wants them to have it, he wants them to know it, he wants them to enjoy it. I want you, he says, with all the saints in all the churches throughout the whole world, to begin to comprehend all this and to know it and to enjoy it. It's for every single Christian. I'm emphasizing it for this reason. I'm so afraid that somebody may be listening to me and say, oh, well, that's very wonderful, but of course he's a minister. He's got time to spend in his study, and I have to set out in the morning at 8 o'clock. I go to business. I'm hard at it. I have to take my work home with me. I have no chance. That's the very lie of the devil. We all have the same chance. It's as possible for a man to waste as much time in his study as it is anywhere else. And you can be busied with other things even there. No, no, thank God. This is something that is for all saints. Whatever our position, whatever our situation. And if we don't know anything about it this morning, if we haven't enjoyed it as we ought, I hope you'll go out of this service profoundly dissatisfied with yourself. And that you'll give yourself no rest nor peace until you have enjoyed it. It is for us to be able to take the language of this apostle and the saints of all the centuries and appropriate it and say, this is true in my life and my experience. And if we are content with anything less than that, we are virtually telling God to his face that we don't believe his word. And that we are content with what we've got. As long as we are in the church anyhow, somehow. And are better than those people who are outside. Ah, oh, we are all right. There is nothing so dishonoring to God and his word as that self-satisfaction. As that contentment to remain but babes in Christ. As that failure to scale the heights. And go up onto the mountain top of God's love. It's for all saints. Well, now then, let me come to my third principle. What is the way to this knowledge? How can we ever hope to have this awareness of Christ's love to us? Now, here is the interesting phrase. Having been rooted and grounded in love, that he may be able with all saints. Unfortunately, this authorized translation is not good at this point. The apostle didn't say that he may be able. He said that you may be fully able, fully able. He deliberately chose a word which had that extra meaning, not that you're able, but that you're fully able. Now, if you like, you can translate it by the word "strengthen." that you may be strengthened, fully able to comprehend. In other words, the apostle here once more does something that he's already been doing in this section. He gives us the impression that there is a difficulty about this matter. That it is not something about which you can say it's quite simple. No, no. He's already prayed that we may be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. We must be strengthened. Here he says it again, that you may be strengthened, may be fully able. It's not easy and simple. We need strength and power and ability before we can know this. Why is that so? Well, the figures we've already been looking at really answer the question. We need to be strengthened.
1: We need to be made fully
0: able by being rooted and grounded in love. Why? Well, for this reason. Because of the weight of God's love which we are going to bear. Love is a very powerful thing. Love is not something weak and flabby and sentimental. Love is dynamite. Love is power. God is love. And all his might and majesty and power are in that love. And when you feel the love of God, you're feeling something of the might of God and the weight and the eternity of God. You go through your Bible and go through Christian biographies, and you will find, as I've had occasion to remind you more than once, that every man who's ever had Any sort of impression of the love of God has always had a feeling that it's overwhelming and has doubted whether he'll be able to stand it. Isaiah, when he saw something of it, he felt it. John, when he really saw it, tells us that he fell down as one dead. The love of God. It's so tremendous, it's so terrific that a man feels he can't stand it, that his physical frame is cracking beneath it. I've often reminded you of Moody's experience in that respect, and it's true of many others. You will read of Christian people, when they've suddenly had an awareness of this love of God, some of them have literally fainted. They've just fainted off and have become unconscious. An instance comes to my mind as I'm speaking, in connection with the revival that took place in Wales in 1904 and 5, ever associated with the name of a man called Evan Roberts, of whom you've heard. Well, that man had an experience like this on one occasion, the very moment when the really big thing happened in his life and in the whole story of that revival. He was standing in a chapel, standing on a kind of rostrum such as that. And suddenly this love of God so came upon him that he literally fell apparently dead, completely, totally unconscious. What had happened was that he'd had a realization of the overwhelming love of God. That's why we need to be strengthened. Love is as strong as death. It's stronger. Stronger than death. There's nothing in a sense which is stronger than death. Or look at it in terms of weight, if you like. You are to have this great weight of the love of God upon you. Very well you need to be fully able. You need to be rooted and grounded in love. If you're to be able to hold it. What a conception. Have we ever felt faint at the love of God? Do we know what it is to be made sick, as it were, by the love of God? That is so marvelous that our strength seems to leave us. We are overwhelmed by it. And all our power seems to be drained out of us. That's one reason. But there is another reason why we need to be made fully able to comprehend it, and that is this. That it is love alone that can recognize love. You see, the argument is that we need to be rooted and grounded in love to comprehend this love of God. And the reason I say is that it is love alone that recognizes love. It is love alone that understands love. It is love alone that can receive love. We are in a realm, you know, where intellect itself almost appears to be ridiculous, doesn't it? It's no use putting intellect to meet love. Can't do it. It's incompetent. Like attracts like. You must have love in your heart if you're going to know love and experience it. There are people, you know, who read the Bible and they hate God. The God of love, they hate him. Why? Well, because there's no love in their hearts. It's love alone that can appreciate love. The illustration is obvious, isn't it? You won't uh, appreciate the most glorious music if you're not musical. There are people who are almost driven mad by the sound of the most glorious symphony. Why? Well, they've got no music in them. Men can walk through the finest art galleries and be bored. Why? Well, they haven't got it in them. And it's the same with love. You see, it's only love that can appreciate love and understand it and receive it. Like speaking to like. Well, the hymn has put it for us again. The love of Jesus, what it is. None but his loved ones know. Nobody else can know it. You see, it leaves me cold. I don't know what you're talking about. People can listen to the preaching of the death of Christ upon the cross and how his precious blood was spilt, and it means nothing to them. Why? Well, because they haven't been rooted and grounded in love. They have not been made fully able to receive it. You need to be prepared for this. And you see, that's why we've had to spend our time in the preparation. It's the only way. Well, let me put it like this, therefore. You know, it's because this principle is true That it is possible for all saints to know this and to have this experience. If it were a matter of intellect, it wouldn't be possible to all the saints. Some would be at an advantage over the others. The man with a greater brain and the greater intellect and understanding would have a kind of priority. He'd be able to have more of the love of God. But oh how wonderful is God's salvation and God's provision. It's a matter of love, you see, and when love comes in, it isn't intellect. The biggest fool intellectually can love as much as the greatest genius. We can all love, thank God, however poor our gifts, however small our understanding, however vile our circumstances, however sunk we may be in iniquity, there is still this capacity for love even in a human sense. And when you come into the Christian life, it's the same. So our blessed Lord was able to say, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemeth good in thy sight. I think there's nothing more glorious about Christianity and the whole Christian message and faith than just this. That God, you see, has chosen to make this central. All the other things are of great value, but at this central point, they fail. Here he postulates something that is common to all. Here is the capacity for love. And when he enters the soul and strengthens it with his might, It is rendered capable of knowing and comprehending the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Isn't this wonderful, therefore, that we are made able, not in terms of understanding primarily, but in terms of our loving and of our love being rooted and grounded in love. And so it becomes possible that this should be a universal experience. And lastly, I seem to detect this in this argument of the apostle, that he, having been rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend. He seems to be getting a little confused, you feel, at first. If you're already rooted and grounded in love, says someone, what more do you need? Ah, here is a great biblical principle. Our Lord, on one occasion, with respect to the question of receiving the truth, put it like this, in an aphorism. Unto him that hath shall be given. And he shall have abundance. But unto him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he seemeth to have. Ah, says someone, that's typical biblical paradox. Unto him that hath shall be given. Nonsense, if he's got it, what does he need? Ah, but what blindness it is to speak like that. Here is the principle. The more you've got in the Christian life, the more you'll get. And you can't get this great and ultimate Love without having love. So you see, the thing goes on; it becomes progressive. It's a kind of geometric progression, not an arithmetical progression. The more you have, the more you'll get. Indeed, if you haven't got something, you'll get nothing. And to him that hath not, shall be taken away even that which he seemeth to have. In other words, here is a man. You see, he says, "I'm a Christian. I'm a member of a church." But I don't understand all this that you're talking about, the love of God. Why not? Well, because you haven't got anything. From him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he seemest to have. But on the other hand, if you've got something of this love in you if you've got this love to god and to christ and to the brethren and to the law of god and to the christian way of life if you've got a certain amount of love well then you can be quite happy you'll get more And then if you go on and have more love in your heart, you'll get still more of his love. And you know, it'll go on like that, I think, to all eternity. The more we love him, the more we'll know his love to us. And we'll say, well, no more is possible. It is possible. Because you know that much more, you'll get more. And on and on it'll go forever and forever. Unto him that hath shall be given. You don't suddenly go from nowhere to the top of this mountain. No, no. If you want to reach the top of this mountain and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, you'd better start climbing at this moment. Forsake the dull plains immediately. Turn your back upon the ordinary level. Begin to scale the heights. And you know, my friend, every step you take up that mountain. You'll begin to feel something new and fresh that you've never known before. Of course, it's a very high mountain. I've been saying that right through, and I want to emphasize it still. And you know, the devil will discourage you, and at times you'll feel tired. And you'll say, Well, I've been walking for days and months and years, but the summit of that mountain seems further away than ever. Is there any point in my going on that I better not go back? Don't listen to the discouragement of the devil. You're already on the way. Keep on unto him that hath shall be given. You never know, it may be the very next step and you'll feel something you've never felt before. You'll begin to realize that the sun is shining in a way that it never did down in the plains. You'll begin to feel some exhilaration, something in the atmosphere, some tonic, You won't understand it, but it's the love of Christ that is being given to you. And at last, you'll stand up and feel strong. And you'll redouble your efforts and you'll go on. And you'll go on and on and on. But you'll never reach the end. It's the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. It's the mountain of God and he'll lead you on ever, always, throughout eternity. Because God is inexhaustible, His eternal love is endless. But all oh, the joy and the wonder and the marvel of knowing the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, we've merely, I say, been surveying the situation, God willing. We will try to go on next Sunday morning to be a little more specific. You notice that there is something said here about the nature of this knowledge.
1: Comprehend
0: and know. And something about these dimensions. Oh, in the meantime, I say, ask yourself the question, do I really know the love of Christ? seek it. Go to him, apply to him. You'll never know his love until you know him. Ask God, according to the riches of his glory, to strengthen you with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend. And you know That prayer is never offered in vain. Trust yourself to his love. He has loved you with an everlasting love. Leave yourself in his hands. Keep his commandments. Do the things we've already considered together and go on and on and on. Amen.